Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. To those of you here in the sanctuary, our friends in the balcony, how are we doing up there? Good? To those in the commons and those joining us via the live stream, we welcome you to First Baptist Church. Um, turn with me in your Bibles. Let me hear those pages turning. Or you're, you're, you're clicking, yeah, whichever. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 12. We're going to cover verses 1 through 12. And as you are turning, I want to share with you something really, really cool that happened this past Wednesday. We had our first Zoom meeting with the pastoral staff from the Beke Church in Ethiopia, um, the church that we are partnering with there with World Orphans. And we shared, as pastors, we were able to share updates on our respective ministries as well as some prayer requests and had a great time of prayer together. And I, th- I thought it was a wonderful start to our, our partnership uh, together as churches. And uh, just a, a crazy world that we live in. I mean, there's so much that's bad about technology at times, but to think that I'm able to look at a pastor in Ethiopia in the eyes, you know, in real time and to be able to pray together some Something very, very special. Um, also, I want to invite you to the next session of Discover First Baptist. If you're a person who's been here for a little while and you're looking to maybe take some next steps of connection and involvement, um, especially if you're considering membership, uh, Discover First Baptist is an opportunity to learn more about what's happening here, including what we believe, how we operate and how you might fit into the greater church family. So our next session of that is Saturday, February 17th from 9 to noon. We're kind of trying to find different time slots at different times that work for different people. The last time that we did it was on a Sunday. And so please sign up so that we know that you are coming. You can use the QR code, the church app, or you can contact the church office. Title for today's sermon is The Parable of the Tenants. The parable of the tenants. And that word parable, it's a compound word in the Greek. Para, meaning beside, and balo, which means to throw down. And it literally means to throw down beside. It's a teaching device, which we see in the scriptures, where something familiar is thrown down beside something new and unfamiliar. And so as Jesus used it in the scriptures, a parable is an earthly story with physical elements that is used to teach spiritual truths. And one of the reasons Jesus tells this particular parable that we're going to be looking at today is to poke the bear. Have you heard that saying before, poke the bear? Um, Maybe some of you in your marriages, you poke the bear every once in a while. I don't recommend it. Um, To poke the bear means to intentionally provoke someone which is what Jesus has been doing these last several weeks that we've been studying um, the Holy Week in Jerusalem, this last week of Jesus' life on earth, or I guess that's not technically, the last week before his crucifixion, he has been provoking the religious leaders. First, he compared them to a fruitless fig tree. Uh, the, The leaves of the fig tree gave the appearance of fruit, but there was no fruit, and so Jesus cursed the fig tree, as a foreshadowing of what was to happen in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Next, Jesus poked the bear when he cleansed the temple. 
He drove out all those who were buying and selling, and he overturned the tables of the money changers, and he prevented people from using the court of the Gentiles as a shortcut, and that obviously provoked the religious leaders who were making a lot of money off of that situation. Then he poked the bear, as we saw last week, when he put the religious leaders between a rock and a hard place. You see, when they challenged his authority and said, by what authority are you doing all of these things? Jesus invoked the name, the ministry, and endorsement of John the Baptist, which meant that if if the religious leaders were to say that John the Baptist was sent from God then they would be admitting that Jesus does have authority, and then the people are going to be confused because all along these religious leaders discarded the ministry of John the Baptist. But if they say that John the Baptist was not sent from God, well, then Jesus does not have authority, but the people will be angry because the people had great esteem for John the Baptist. He had grown very popular. And so it was a lose-lose situation, a rock and a hard place for these religious leaders, which made them furious. They wanted to explode. So in these three ways, Jesus poked the bear. He provoked the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And this ongoing provocation in this last week before Jesus' crucifixion is the setting for our text today. And so would you please stand with me as I read the text out of reverence for God's Word? It says in Mark 12, verse 1, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Would you please pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us this solid place that we can stand as we continue to watch in our world Um, just the shifting sand that is all around us and that which is so uncertain. God, we have such certainty in the truth of your word. And so, God, would you please speak to our hearts today? We long to hear your voice. And God, when you speak, may we not just be hearers of the word, may we be doers. 
So God, I, I ask for your help today in um, preaching this text, this message. And uh, when we come to the end of it, may we all be able to say we have heard the voice of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so verse 1 begins, and he began to speak to them in parables. So again, Jesus is going to poke the bear one more time, uh, this time by telling a parable, an earthly story with a spiritual meaning, taking something that is familiar, something that is known, and using it to teach something that is unfamiliar and unknown. And so as we study this parable, we're going to consider um, three things. First, the elements of the parable, the meaning of the parable, and then lastly, the application of the parable. So we've got the elements, the meaning, and the application. So let's look first at the elements of the parable. Because see, this parable, similar to others, they commonly contain symbols, physical elements that correspond to spiritual truths. So something physical in the story is going to correspond to something spiritual. And the first of these elements in the parable of the tenants is the vineyard. And the vineyard is a symbol for Israel. The vineyard is a symbol for Israel. It says in verse 1, a man planted a vineyard. We're covered with a common scene in Israel where the hillsides were covered with grapevines. Vineyards have often been called the backbone of Israel's economy. And when Jesus mentioned a vineyard at the beginning of this parable, it likely would have set off alarm bells with the religious leaders, for likely they would have thought of, they would have remembered Isaiah chapter 5, where it said this, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. And then just a few verses later in Isaiah 5, it says this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And so 700 years before Jesus told the parable of the tenants, the prophet Isaiah told a parable of his own in which Israel was symbolized by a vineyard. And in our text today, Jesus is going to build on this Isaiah passage, this Isaiah passage which would have been familiar to the religious leaders who would have instantly recognized that the vineyard symbolizes Israel. So that's the first element, the vineyard symbolizes Israel. The next element of the parable is the man or the owner who is God the Father. The man or the owner who is God the Father. Look again at verse 1. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So the man in context here clearly is the owner of the vineyard based upon the things that he is doing. And notice, he's a really good owner of the vineyard. How do we know he's good? Well, notice how much he's invested in it. Back to verse 1. He planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press. He built a tower. And notice again the similarities when we put Isaiah 5 right next to this verse. We jump down to Isaiah 5 too. Um, we see in Isaiah 5, he built a watchtower and he hewed out a wine vat in it. We see some similarities in the text. And notice again the great investment that the owner made in the vineyard in both cases. 
put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower. Now, the tower was a structure that had three purposes. It was a lookout to, to make sure that no thieves tried to come in and steal on the property. It was also a shelter for the workers, and it also provided storage for the tools of the vineyard. And the point of all of this is that the owner cared deeply for the vineyard. The owner cared deeply for the vineyard and had given it everything necessary to be fruitful. Likewise, it says in Psalm 73, 1, Truly, God is good to Israel. Truly, God the owner is good to Israel the vineyard. As the owner in the parable had given the vineyard everything necessary to be fruitful, so God had given to Israel everything necessary to be fruitful in its mission of being a light to the nations. Therefore, it was completely appropriate and expected for him to anticipate fruitfulness and to expect fruitfulness from his vineyard. The parable continues in the last part of verse 1 where it says that the owner leased it to tenants and he went into another country. He leased it to tenants. And this is the third element of our parable, the tenants who symbolize the religious leaders, those that Jesus keeps provoking, poking the bear. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, those who composed that Jewish supreme court known as the Sanhedrin. It was common practice at that time for wealthy landowners to live elsewhere. They kind of had these, these sprawling properties, and in their absence, they would lease their land to tenants who would work the vineyard, and then they would pay rent to the landowner in the form of a percentage of the harvest. It was the job of the tenants to make sure that the land was as fruitful as possible. And so in the context of the parable, as we put these pieces together, it was the job of the Jewish religious leaders to make sure that Israel, the vineyard, was as fruitful as possible. How'd they do? Not well. You see... The religious leaders were the tenants who were called to cultivate the land and to be responsible to God the Father, the landowner. But as we have seen, largely because of their self-centeredness, because of their corruption, because of their greed, the impact was that Israel was void of fruit. Their malpractice was vividly demonstrated by the way throughout history that they treated the fourth element of the parable, which is the servants. The servants who symbolize the prophets of the Old Testament. The servants. Look with me at verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get them from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. As was the practice of the day, the landowner would send a servant to be his representative to collect the agreed-upon rent. But in the parable... 
The tenants beat the servants that the owner had sent, even killing some, just as Israel's religious leaders throughout history over the years beat and killed God's servants, the prophets. Nehemiah said of these religious leaders of Israel, Nehemiah 9.26, he said, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. It's interesting, when we survey the deaths of some of Israel's most notable prophets, we see that Isaiah was sawn in two. Jeremiah was stoned to death. Amos was tortured and then murdered. Habakkuk was stoned to death. Who did this? The tenants. Israel's religious leaders. Now, what I find noteworthy in the history of the prophets and in this parable of the tenants is how God kept sending His servants, even when they were repeatedly beaten and killed. Isn't that that interesting? seems like maybe after the first one, you might stop. But God kept sending His servants even when they were repeatedly beaten and killed. What does this tell us about God the Father? Well, 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think that is the essence of why God kept sending the prophets. He kept sending his servants, even when they were rejected. The the owner of the vineyard was patient and long-suffering toward the rebellious tenants, just as God the Father is patient and long-suffering toward rebellious sinners, rebellious sinners like us, right? Even in the midst of our rejection of God, God keeps pursuing us and pursuing us and pursuing us. Why? Because He loves us. Oh, how He loves us. And if you walk away with any one thing from this parable today, I trust that you will walk away with that image of the owner of the vineyard continuing to send servants and to reach out and to make invitation and to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep reaching out to you because I love you. The next element in the parable is the son who represents, symbolizes Jesus. The son symbolizes Jesus. Look with me at verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. And I want you to take particular notice of that word beloved. The son of the owner was beloved by the owner. Does that set off any alarm bells for you? We see God the Father speak these exact same words about His Son, Jesus. First at His baptism in Mark 1.11, where it says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. 
And then that same word was also used by God the Father in reference to Jesus at the transfiguration in Mark 9, 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a, beloved, or, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him. That consistency of terminology is no accident. It is meant to help us to connect the dots and identify the Son and the owner's relationship with the Son. And further, if we go back to the Old Testament, that term beloved is also used of Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, where it says, God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, your beloved son Abraham, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And of course, we know the rest of that story, that God was testing Abraham. Abraham passed the test. Abraham did not sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac. God provided a ram as a substitute sacrifice. But the point is that as the owner of the vineyard loved his son, so Abraham loved his son, and so God the Father loved his son, they were beloved And don't miss the fact that the audacity of Abraham offering his only beloved son Isaac, for us it's like, that's unthinkable. That is just outlandish. Why would such a thing be required? That helps us to understand it as a foreshadowing of the owner of the vineyard, what God the Father is about to do in the parable, offering his beloved son as a sacrifice. The parable continues in verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Uh, They had some interesting laws back then regarding property and possession. According to the law of that day, if if a piece of land like this vineyard did not have an heir, well, possession of the land would transfer to the tenants. So, therefore, it was very strategic and intentional uh, for the tenants to kill the heir, the son, and position themselves to take over the land as then its legal and rightful owners. They would actually become the legal heirs, which helps us to understand the backstory of what's going on with the religious leaders. They were positioning themselves to have power and authority in Israel rather than Jesus. This is a power struggle. Who's who's, who's the authority? They asked that question of Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? They ask it because they pictured themselves to be the authority, and now they're positioning themselves to do just that. But to do so, what are they going to have to do? Kill the heir. Kill the son. Now notice, and I love this about the story, is that Jesus, as he tells the parable, he's actually predicting his death, even the exact details of what would happen on Friday and its significance, which reminds us that Jesus isn't just a passive victim in what's happening, is he? No, he is voluntarily laying down his life, but he already knows what's going to happen. He knows the details, and he's also sovereign and in control of those details. So the next element of the parable, the last one is the others, 
the others, and they symbolize Gentiles like you and me, non-Jews. Look with me at verse 9. Jesus says in the parable, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What will God the Father do when all of his servants and then finally the son are killed by the tenants, the religious leaders? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. This verse is really important and relevant to us gathered here today because it speaks of God opening the kingdom to non-Jews like you and me. We are those others. Don't miss that. And as it says in Romans 11.25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This partial hardening of the Jews that is being spoken of here in Romans 11 is what Jesus is talking about in the parable in the giving of the kingdom, to the vineyard to others. Gentiles like you and me. But make no mistake, God is not finished with Israel. The day is coming when Israel will in fact be restored and they will bear much fruit. They will fulfill their mission as God's chosen people of being the light to the nations that they were intended to be. But for now, there is this partial hardening as the vineyard is given to others, as the door is opened to the Gentiles. So those are the elements of the parable. Let's talk now more in depth about the meaning of the parable. We've, we've already kind of touched it on the surface. Let's go deeper. Jesus illustrates the meaning of the parable in verse 10 when he says this. Have you not read this in Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus changes metaphors here. We were talking about a vineyard. Now we're talking about a building. In the parable of the tenants, Jesus was the son, but now in this metaphor of a building, Jesus is what? The cornerstone. And Jesus here is actually quoting Psalm 118, verses 22 through 23, where it says in that psalm, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, interestingly, if you think back to the the not-so-triumphal entry when the crowds were proclaiming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What was that quote from? Psalm 118. So Psalm 118 kind of gives us the context of what is happening here during Holy Week. Um, The crowds are proclaiming it. Jesus is quoting it. And that psalm, it's so spectacular when you think about the mystery of it all. It also predicts the events that are taking place in this Holy Week, which is mind-blowing when you think of it. Well, what exactly is a cornerstone? Um, The cornerstone was the solid rock upon which the rest of the building is constructed. It had to have perfectly straight lines so that it could direct the symmetry of the rest of the building. If the cornerstone was crooked or flawed, what would be the nature of the rest of the building? It would be crooked and it would be flawed. And so Jesus is the perfect cornerstone upon which God's kingdom is built. However, what did the Jewish religious leaders do with the cornerstone? 
They, they rejected it. They discarded it in an effort to make what the cornerstone? Themselves. And what was the result of that faulty cornerstone? Well, it resulted in an edifice that was crooked and faulty. It's a picture, I think, of what happens when we don't have Jesus as the cornerstone of our lives. And so putting the pieces together, together, the meaning of the parable is this. Jesus not only predicted the actions of the religious leaders and rejecting him, but he also called out their motivation. Jesus not only predicted the actions of the religious leaders and rejecting him, but he also called out their motivation, their desire to take the rightful place of Jesus as the owner of the vineyard and then to take his place as the cornerstone of the kingdom. Which brings us to the third and final element of the parable, which is the application of the parable. I've got three for you this morning, um, three application points for the parable. Number one is this, be receptive to correction. Be receptive to correction. The passage ends on a predictably sad note in verse 12. Um, it says, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Um, the, the religious leaders understood all too well the meaning of the parable. They understood the elements of the parable, the symbolism. They understood that the story was about them and was meant to bring conviction to them, much as in the Old Testament. Do you remember that story of the prophet Nathan confronting David regarding his sin with Bathsheba? And it's interesting, Nathan, how did Nathan confront David? with a parable, with a story. Um, and at the end, at the conclusion of that parable, Nathan says to David, David, you are the man. That's essentially what Jesus is doing with the religious leaders. You are the men. You are guilty. How did David respond to the correction of Nathan the prophet? King David, as an example to all of us, he repented when he was confronted with his sin. But how about the religious leaders of Jesus' day when they were confronted? What did they do? They did not repent when confronted. They were not receptive to correction. How about you? When you are confronted with your sin, how do you respond? Or do you even put yourself in a position where you could be confronted with your sin? Or have you so isolated yourself and so shrunk your world that no one is able to speak into your life? Are you humble and teachable like King David, or are you defensive and resistant like the religious leaders? I'm convinced that one of the greatest marks of spiritual maturity is humble teachability. One of the greatest marks of spiritual maturity is humble teachability. The desire, people who are spiritually mature desire to be confronted with their sin. Why? Because they want to be more like Jesus. And they want to have communion with Jesus. And they understand that their sin is a hindrance to intimacy and communion with Jesus. And so they welcome correction. They're not content to know Jesus from a distance. 
and have sin be an interference in that. They, they desire to have that sin forgiven. They desire to repent. They desire for it to be cleansed so that there's nothing standing in the way. Be receptive to correction. The next point of application is be right in construction. Be right in construction. We are all building lives, aren't we? You're all builders. I'm a builder. You're a builder. As we build our lives, the question is, what is your cornerstone? That upon which the rest of our lives is built. If you start with the wrong cornerstone, your building will be crooked and unstable. And for so many people, the cornerstone that they try, they attempt to start with, is themselves. I'm going to build upon me. I'm going to, just like the religious leaders, they wanted to be the cornerstone instead of Jesus, and it failed miserably, and so it is with us. If you start with the wrong cornerstone, your building will be crooked and unstable. If you start with the right cornerstone, your building will be straight, and it will be solid. It will stand. Friends, there is only one perfect cornerstone upon which we are able to build our lives, and that is Jesus Christ. Just as the old hymn says, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground, including self, is sinking sand. Is it February already? Does that get anybody's attention? We only get one shot at this life, right? One chance. And it goes so very, very quickly. And at the end, we will have to give an account for how we will have built our lives. Therefore, we must be right in construction. We must have the right cornerstone upon which we built. It's possible that some of you once upon a time had Jesus as your cornerstone. You put your faith and trust in Jesus and you surrendered your life to Him as both Savior and Lord, but it's possible that as you've been building your life, you have deviated from that cornerstone and you've attempted to replace it with the cornerstone of self. And it's not working, is it? What an opportunity to be able to course correct and to say, you know what, I need a new cornerstone. I need Jesus. Lastly, in addition to be receptive to correction, be right in construction, be ready for the conclusion. Be ready for the conclusion. Because one of the things that stands out to me is the landowner will return. The landowner will return. And we must give an account for our stewardship of his vineyard. The question we all have to ask, again, changing metaphors now from building to vineyard, is this. When the landowner returns and he looks at our lives, will he find fruit? Will he find fruit? Or will he find just a lot of busyness and activity that doesn't result in fruit? You know, it's interesting, we go back to Isaiah's parable of the vineyard. It serves as a warning for us. As Isaiah was talking about Israel being the vineyard and 
the fact that they were not fulfilling their God-given mission of fruitfulness and being a light to the nations. It says in Isaiah 5, I will remove its hedge, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. This was, in fact, as we talked about several weeks ago, the tragic conclusion that befell the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. After all the prophets and all the warnings that they gave, and even after God sent His own Son, the religious leaders still rejected correction. And after putting all the, not all of the prophets, but after putting so many prophets to death, they put the Son to death, desiring themselves to seize control of the kingdom. And so God finally sent judgment. And it is a picture of the judgment to come for those who continually reject God's invitation to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. Yes, God is loving. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He continues in the midst of our rebellion to send, to send, to invite, to invite. But as Romans eleven twenty two 22 says, note then the kindness and the severity of God and the severity of God. We must be ready for the conclusion, for His return, for judgment. We must be ready for when the owner of the vineyard will come and require us to give account of our fruitfulness. My question for you, are you ready? I want to close this morning a, a quote from Charles Spurgeon who said this about this passage. He said, remember once more that if you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ is rejected, then hope is rejected. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, I want to begin in this prayer by acknowledging and thanking you for your great love, your great patience, your great long-suffering, how you give and you give and you give and you invite and you invite and you invite and you send and you send and you send. Oh, but God, may we not presume upon your kindness. I pray for someone, perhaps several someones today, that today would be a day of repentance, a day in which they acknowledge that the parable is about them. They've been attempting to be the cornerstone. They've been attempting to be the authority in their lives when all along as your creatures, the rightful place for us is to be under your lordship. And so God, may today be a, a day of course correction for many, a day in which we acknowledge, yeah, 
I've gone astray. I need Jesus as the cornerstone. I need Jesus to be the Son who sacrificed His life for my sins. So God, would you speak to each one of our hearts? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.